0: All right. Well, good morning. Good morning, good morning. It's great to be here again with you this morning and to be opening up God's Word. Uh, We are, uh, as a church, uh, over the last few weeks, we've been going through a series where we've been uh, answering this question, can he be trusted? Uh, And to do so, we've been actually in the gospel of Mark, um, looking at the life of Jesus, specifically chapters four to eight. Uh, if you want to have a, a hard copy of a Bible as well, we have one right here that's actually just the Gospel of Mark. Uh, so you can take that, you can write in it, you can do whatever you want to in it, uh, and it can be yours. It's our gift to you. Corey, it's yours. Blessings on you. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and in this series, so we've been looking at chapters four to eight, and two things that have come up quite often that, that we've noticed kind of over and over again, and and really put a lot of focus on, is that uh, Jesus, uh, that nobody teaches quite like Jesus with the authority that he has, and nobody has the miracles or the works of Jesus. That in the Bible, Jesus is completely unique uh, and different than every other uh, person that we see. And that's because the Bible teaches that he's not just a good man or a good prophet, but rather that Jesus is God. He is God with us. He's God moved into the neighborhood. He is, uh, if you ever grew up playing The Sims or Roller Coaster Tycoon, you make those things. Imagine then you can jump into that world and be like, yo, I just made you. Uh, That's what we see in Jesus is, is God himself laying humanity alongside of his divinity and stepping into time. And so when we're looking at Jesus, if we want to know who God is and what he's like, what he loves, what he doesn't love, we look at Jesus to see all of these things. Jesus is therefore fully God and fully man. He's 100% God and 100% man, and so when Jesus, no wonder he teaches like nobody else, right? Like when he opened up the Bible, he's God explaining his own words to us, right? So he would speak with authority a little bit different uh, than everybody else. Uh, and, and then no wonder that he has the works like nobody else. He, he walks around fixing bodies that he had once knitted together in their mother's wombs. And throughout the last few weeks, we've been considering how Jesus demonstrates over and over again that he can be trusted, that what he teaches is true. And yet, if we uh, read through the Gospels, the accounts of his life, death, burial, and resurrection, or or maybe even seen a a movie of Jesus's life, what we quickly see is that not everybody loves Jesus. Not everybody loves Jesus. Specifically, the the religious leaders of his day did not love Jesus, but they, in fact, hated the things that he taught. Uh, In fact, um, uh, in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, we read that the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders of the day, Uh, They went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. That's a a political party uh, that loved Herod, King Herod. They counseled with them how to destroy him. They're they're trying to find out how to kill Jesus, which seems strange. If if you've been following along in the story, you might wonder why anyone would want Jesus to die. Uh, A few weeks ago, we read about how Jesus turned five loaves of bread and two fish into enough food to feed roughly 15,000 people in a desolate place. Not only that, but he's constantly healing people, large crowds, people that have various kinds of illnesses and diseases, people that are blind or deaf or lame or mute, people that had long-term debilitating diseases, Jesus would heal them. Even the dead, he raises back to life. That's wild. Not only that, he can eliminate hunger globally and heal every other form of disease. That would mean that there would be no more cystic fibrosis. There would be no more dementia, no more cancer, no more childhood cancer, no more tumors, no more of anything, right? If you can imagine if Jesus showed up today and was at Portage in Maine, and he's like, yo, hey, coronavirus, don't worry about it. It's just, now it's just gone, right? We'd be like, what? Right? There'd be fanfare. There would be parades. There would be... like. You'd be hard pressed if that happens today to find someone that if, if he's in Portage and Maine doing all that, that would say, you know what, let's kill him, right? Like, like, this is the guy you want around. He feeds you. He heals you from all diseases or infirmities. He teaches great things. Like, this is a guy that you would imagine you would want around. So, so the question then is, why are there people that want him dead? If that's the case, why are these guys, these religious leaders, why do they want Jesus dead? And to understand that, we need to understand Israel's history. If you've ever seen the old Charlton Heston movie where Charlton Heston is Moses and he says, let my people go, uh, and leads the people from slavery in Egypt uh, through uh, the wilderness time and into the promised land that God had given them. Well, In the intermediary, in the wilderness time, God gives his people laws. Uh, they had been enslaved for about 400 years and didn't know how to govern or lead a nation right? And so uh, on their way in, he's like, okay, this is going to be the laws of this new nation that I'm creating, that I am building. And I'm giving you these laws so that the nations of the world might see that there is a God in Israel. And he is unlike their gods. They are worthless idols in comparison to me. So I'm going to give you specific laws as a people so that the nations may see and know that you are a holy and a separated people, that, that you are unlike them. And yet what we quickly see happen is throughout their history as a people, Israel tended to reject God's words and God's judgments, what he thinks about certain things. What he calls sin, they say, ah, is it sin? Ah, probably not. right?" And So, so they, they begin to question and they go back against God's words and against God's judgments. And the threat was that, that as they did so over and over again, that there eventually would come a time where they would lose the land that God had given them that their evil would become so great that God would send them out of the land. But, but, but before that, they, they had these cycles where they would uh, go against God's words and God's judgment, start worshiping other gods, other idols. They would give their lives to that, and then God would raise up a Messiah-like figure And this Messiah-like figure would call them back, say, all right, hey, let's get back to God's word. Let's get back to God's judgments. Let's just turn away from these things. Let's focus on that. And God would save them from the hands of these people who had oppressed them. That's what we see in the book of Judges. It's this cycle over and over and over again of people rejecting God's word and judgments and going into slavery. God would bring people to, to oversee them. And then God would liberate them as they turned back to God's word and judgments until finally what happened is their evil became so great over generation after generation after generation that God had the nation of Assyria come in and discipline uh, Israel so that Israel was taken away into captivity. And then God sent Babylon to capture Judah and to take them away out of the promised land that God had given them. But then 70 years later, the people turned their hearts and their affections by God's kindness, back to his words and his judgments, and God restored them back into the land. And so under Ezra and Nehemiah, the people came back to the land. And as they are back in the land, they recommit themselves. To God's words and God's judgments. They say, you will be God. We will not. We've seen how this goes poorly. Like anytime we reject your words and judgments, we get out of the land. Like, all right, this is the land you've given. We're going to follow you. All right, we're going to follow you. And so Ezra, uh, in the book of Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, he rehearses Israel's history to them and reminds them, hey, let's be faithful to God's word and to God's judgments. Let's trust that or else we're going to lose our land again. God's gonna bring someone in, they're gonna dominate over us. And so it became very important to love, trust, and follow God's laws for them as a people. Again, so that the nations would know that there's a God in Israel. And some of the latter prophets, the minor prophets, they they said that if God's people would keep God's word, that one day they would see a king come and sit on the throne of David, and he would lead them. And all nations would come and bow before this king and bow before God, as the only true and living God. We see this in Psalm chapter two, for example, this this foretaste of this one day, this king who would come, who would lead God's people and all the nations of the world would come and worship God underneath this king. So they were expectant that as they kept God's laws, God would send this king. And then Moses had promised a prophet would come that would lead them in God's word. And so the people rightly wanted to observe and follow and love God's words. Yet what happened over time is in order to protect God's word, what they did is, is they started building traditions around that, and then some traditions around that, and traditions around that, because they didn't want to get close to actually breaking God's commands. So because they didn't want to break God's commands, they just made up some some other rules and said, oh, we're going to teach these, right, because they know that if if this is the law, you could easily break it. So they just added on to it and added on to it and added on to it. And so eventually what happened is that they, uh, their aim was that God would send the Messiah. So they created these tradition upon tradition upon tradition, all so that you might not actually break God's laws because they wanted the Messiah to come. They, they don't want to get you even close to breaking God's laws. But, but over time, what happened is, is these teachers of, of God's people they became so preoccupied with the teaching of these traditions that they actually neglected teaching God's word. They didn't even teach God's word anymore. In fact, they took their tradition upon tradition upon traditions and made them equal to or even greater than God's word. And they put all of their time, all of their energy, all of their focus on teaching the traditions and not actually God's law. All they they cared about were the external things, And so when Jesus came around, which is interesting because he is the promised Messiah, they totally miss him. As he comes around, he didn't follow any of those traditions, but instead he strategically goes against all of these teachings. Remember, these aren't biblical. These are not in the Bible. These are external religious things. And Jesus keeps breaking them over and over again. Uh, Two of them that we've seen so far in the book of Mark is that Jesus didn't fast like them. These people had made this, this tradition. Uh, in, in God's word, you only had to fast on one day out, out, out of the year as God's people. And they said, no, 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 you need to fast twice a week because really religious holy people, they fast twice a week. And Jesus came around and said, no, 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 I'm not doing that. That's silly. That's this tradition. This is not God's word. This is just something you've made up. And so while they would be fasting, he would be feasting with people that they deemed sinful. So he would go to the homes of prostitutes and tax collectors and love them and be with them and teach them all while the religious people are trying to not get anywhere near those kinds of people. Those people might taint me, those, those bad people. And Jesus was unlike them. And then he didn't celebrate the Sabbath like them. We see that, that God gives very specific laws of what you're supposed to do on the Sabbath in his word. But these guys had added laws upon laws upon laws around it. We talked about this a couple of months ago where you couldn't even accidentally spit on your own grass, lest it be considered watering your grass. And that's breaking the law. And it's not in the Bible, but oh, breaking the law, right? Or, or we, we talked about if you're a woman, that you, you can't look in a mirror on the Sabbath because if you see a hair out of place and you accidentally move it, oh, but that's work. How dare you! work on the Sabbath, right? Like they, they made all these traditions and laws that are not in the Bible, but just they keep them. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not keeping that either. Jesus instead used these days to provide for the sick and the needy, to love people well, to do actually what God has commanded us to do on the Sabbath. And, and because of this kind of strategic tearing down of these traditions, the religious leaders wanted Jesus dead. They wanted him to die. They loved their traditions so much, they just, they wanted him So today, what we're gonna see is in God's word, we're gonna see uh, an instance of how some of them traveled a great distance, 90 miles. That's like driving from here to Winnipeg Beach, twice. That's a long way to go. So these guys travel 90 miles uh, because they wanna check in on Jesus's teaching and they wanna tell him uh, where he's wrong and how he just needs to uh, just tweak this, do this, don't do that. And so I've called today's uh, sermon clean hands, and dirty hearts, and you'll see why in a moment. So what we're going to do is we're going to pray, and then we're going to read together uh, Mark chapter 7, so big, bold, number 7, and then verses or smaller numbers, 1 to 23. Um, And and as we do so, if you want to, for fun, circle the word tradition, you will see it come up a lot uh, in this text, uh, and you'll see how much they care about their traditions as opposed to caring about God's word. So let's pray, and then, uh, and then we'll walk through uh, the first couple of verses of Mark chapter seven. So Father, I pray that as we are opening your word, that you would use it in a way to encourage us, that you would use it um, in our lives in lots of different ways. However, we're walking in this morning, that you would allow us to see your kindness and your love and your grace and your mercy towards us. Because as we sang a moment ago, none of us deserve that. And we desperately need your help if we're going to see anything from this text today. We, we, we pray that you would give us eyes that can see and hearts that can feel. We pray that you would give us minds that understand and that we would not be like these religious leaders who, at the end of this, want Jesus to die, but instead that we would have soft hearts. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to read a couple of verses, uh, and then I'm going to stop and explain, and then a couple of verses, and then I'm going to stop and explain, and that's going to be how we're gonna roll today, all right? Great, uh, great. All right, so uh, the first little bit that we're gonna see, starting in verse one of chapter seven. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him, to Jesus, with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of the disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Unwashed, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. (laughs) And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, "Why, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands. We're gonna pause right there. And as we do, let me clarify something as we're going. Okay, we're in the midst of a pandemic right now, right? So so you might read this and be like, washing hands, Uh, Jesus might be teaching us here in the disciples that we should just never wash our hands before eating. So, uh, right, like viruses and communicable diseases, they don't exist. Jesus says, look, they don't exist. Don't ever wash your hands. Uh, that, that's, not, that's not what we see. Uh, that's not what Jesus is teaching. Uh, instead, from the very pages of the Bible, we actually know that hygiene is very, very important for Jewish people. In fact, these people lived in a world, as we know, uh, and as we do, but even back then, they didn't know about a lot of things, molecular biology, uh, how some things are transmitted from person to person via coughing or you know, whatever. And so, but, but God had given them, as his people, very important, clear laws on when they actually should wash their hands. So, for example, they wouldn't do some disgusting task, like go to the bathroom and then start eating right away they would wash their hands, right? They wouldn't be digging in the dirt and then just come with like mud and then just be like, I'm just going to have some bread, right? Like, like that's disgusting. This is not what G- they are talking about. Uh, this isn't the issue here, but rather what's happening is that Jesus' disciples are not following the tradition of, of, of washing your hands. The these tradition of the elders, it's one of those doctrines around doctrines around doctrines. It's one of those like Fences around fences around fences that religious people had set up whereby they force everyone to try to be clean and holy just like them. They had a religious system where they, uh, that where they taught uh, and, and taught other people to follow them that, that although it wasn't in God's word, they didn't care so much that it wasn't found there. They simply cared that, that they made themselves look clean and innocent on the outside. That, that's what they, they cared about they simply cared making themselves feel like they were clean and innocent and in a right relationship with God. It was all external things. They thought, I'm going to be right in a right relationship with God, and it's going to come as I uh, refrain from certain activities or from being around certain people that are kind of defiled or unclean. I'm going to make myself in a right relationship with God by how I wash my hands and prove to everyone just how holy of a person I am. It was religious activity that was based on works. What do I need to do to cleanse my hands and make myself pure on the outside? It was, it was kind of a fixation on the visible outward holiness. I even learned this past week that rabbis, when they woke up in, in the morning, and they would wash their hands, they would sing happy birthday three times as they, uh, they wash their hands. And as they do so, if they stayed alone all day long, their hands would be clean all day. But if they left and went out among the commoners uh, and they bought something at the store or they did something, when they came back home, they would wash their hands before they eat or before they prayed. Get that? They thought when they came back home from the market in order to pray, they had to wash their hands first. See, this wasn't a, this wasn't a hygiene issue. This was a, I'm gonna make myself look holy and clean on the outside kind of an issue. So they gained a reputation from everybody of like, oh, those are the super holy, extra special people. God must really love them, right? Like, and that's what they wanted. They, they wanted this, this thing. When they walked out, everyone said, oh, look at them. Aren't they so special and holy? God must be really happy with them. They are flawless. Now, now we should note as well, there are many cases where in the Bible, washings are told to uh, happen, for example, if God's people were to touch a dead body, they had to wash their hands. If they touched someone with a communicable disease or if they touched certain beds or things, they had to wash their hands and wash their clothing, and they would be unclean until evening. We even see in God's word, there are laws about washing pots and pans and things like that. Or if you got mold in your house, how to actually get the mold out in a way that didn't pollute your house. So, so there are some of those laws in here. But what these guys did is they built laws on top of God's laws, on top of God's laws, on top of God's laws. And they taught their laws, not God's law. They made their traditions, their thoughts, equal and greater than God's word. In essence, they cared more about their own traditions than they did God's word. They wanted Jesus then to fit inside how they viewed how the world should be. And they hated that he stood in opposition to him. He was a thorn in their foot, right? Like he stepped out every day. They just, they hated Jesus. They were teaching all this cleansing and cleansing and cleansing and cleansing. In fact, uh, after Jesus died and rose from the dead about two or 300 years later, a book was written uh, that compiled all of the traditions of the elders and no lie about washings, washing your hands, washing things, washing your couches. There were over 30 pages of how you ought to wash things. Now, this is not God's word. This is just how they thought it should be. 30 pages, you guys. Can you imagine trying to follow 30 pages of how to wash things properly every single day? That would be exhausting. Like, I hate just putting things into the dishwasher. I can't imagine just, like all of that. Like, that's wild. And, and yet this is, this is what they, they taught, that, that you had to do this in order to be holy like me. And if you didn't do things the way that they thought they should be done, then you were a godless heretic who deserved to die. And so they come to Jesus, someone that their friends are plotting to kill, remember? And they confront him. Why aren't your disciples keeping the traditions, they ask him. And Jesus, in response, I, I love this, he, he does two things. One, he addresses their teaching, and secondly, he addresses their hearts. So that's the way that we're going to see this entire text unfold. He addresses their teaching in their hearts. He's going to show that their teaching, what they're teaching the people, is actually wrong. It contradicts the Bible. And ultimately, because, because their hearts are dirty. That's why they are teaching these things to these people. And a few weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus was a good shepherd, how he cared about God's people and he fed them God's word. Remember, he sees them in the desolate place and he comes and he teaches them being a good shepherd, knowing what they need and feeding them God's word. He's in stark contrast with these men. These men are supposed to be God's leaders of God's people. They're supposed to be like a good shepherd who gives proper nutrition and water and protects them from danger. They're supposed to feed God's people with God's word and protect them from believing lies about God, but their traditions have eclipsed their love of God's word. And the people aren't receiving a proper diet of God's word. And, and as a result, they are spiritually dying. They are weak and unable to know right from wrong. And so the religious leaders are upset that Jesus' disciples aren't washing or rinsing their hands in this extra special holy kind of a way. So they tell Jesus, they say, Jesus, correct your disciples, man. You need to, you need to fix them. They aren't keeping the traditions that we hold dear. And on hearing this, this is how Jesus responds to them. This is one of like Jesus' like mic drop uh, moments. Uh, it's... Beautiful, and it says, and he said to them, well, or or rightly, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites. As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart, their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus is firstly saying here that these guys are pretending, they are play actors. They are playing a part. They're pretending to be holy when actually they're not. They honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. They have very dirty hearts, even though it appears externally like they're very clean. And it's not good enough. God doesn't want lip service. He wants our hearts. See as well the next line that says that they worship God in vain. In vain do they worship God in a way that is pointless, in a way that is dangerous to their souls. Did you know that you can worship false gods, those who are not gods, what the Bible would say are worthless idols or demons that are stealing God's attention and focus? But you can also worship the right God, but do it wrongly in a way that God looks at it and says, This is vanity, this is pointless. You're worshiping the right God in the wrong way, and it's not enough. It's not right. It's possible to honor God with your lips, but to have hearts that are far from him. It's possible to be a part of a church that preaches the Bible, that teaches good, solid doctrine, and yet to have hearts that are far from God. It's easy to worship your traditions, your thoughts of how things ought to be, and to teach them to others, and to teach them in such a way that they become doctrines whereby you seek to justify yourself. You puff yourself up in pride over and against others. Which lead us to a moment where we examine our hearts. It, it did for me this week. And here's some questions I ask myself that I will also ask you. Do I believe, do I believe there's only one way of doing things? The way that I think that they should be done, and if they aren't done the way that I think they should be, then those people are being unfaithful, unfaithful to God or to the Bible. Not not because they're they're uh, teaching uh, false things or contrary to the Bible, but just simply because they're not holding the traditions that I hold dearly. Think of conversations maybe you've heard, or maybe how you've been guilty of this. I know I have. I have been. For example, someone might use a different version of the Bible than you love. It's not an inaccurate version. It's a faithful, true representation of the Greek and Hebrew, right? But it's just not the one that you like, so they're all wrong, right? Or or maybe maybe they don't drink alcohol, and so you look down on them. Or maybe they do drink alcohol, and so you, you look down on them. See, we all walk into this room with different traditions uh, we we all come, and it's amazing to me what God is is doing in our church, bringing together people from drastically different countries, languages, backgrounds, church traditions. And as we're, as we're coming together, I, I think that we are doing a, a great job of, of not majoring on our traditions, but but majoring on the Bible and God's word, which I love, keep it up. Uh, but it would be easy in this kind of an instance of, of all of our different church traditions to walk in and start judging one another because somebody doesn't measure up to the way that, that you think that it should be done. Again, not, it's not something that's not in the Bible. Like, we're going to follow this right? Uh, but there's lots of other things that we walk in with thinking, oh, if it's not done this way, it's just not right. I mean, I mean, it, it, I mean is that in here? If it's in here, I'll agree with you. Yes, show me, we'll start doing it. If not, well, it, it's just, it's a tradition that we add on, that we, we justify ourselves and, and look down on other people for, for no reason. See, so, so we are like these men in, in a lot of ways, and so after Jesus tells them they're play actors and they're falsely worshiping God because they teach us doctrines, these, these, these fences, he, he continues to rebuke them. These are the next two lines. He says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. Man, that is a stinging rebuke. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of man instead. And then he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And the religious leaders, they are rebuking Jesus because he isn't playing according to their little game with the lies that God cares more about external holiness and external righteousness than internal holiness and internal righteousness, Jesus doesn't want them to believe this lie. He doesn't want them to, and he doesn't want us to, to believe that external holiness means that someone has internal holiness. Because let me tell you, it is easy, easy to fake something for two hours on a Sunday. Super easy. You can just walk in. How's it going? Oh, I'm blessed, brother. Life is good. The Lord is good. I'm down, but I'm not. I'm I'm a victory winner, right? Like that's easy on a Sunday morning. Super easy. It's, it's easy to pretend to be a Christian on social or to say the right things or do the right things on social. How easy is that? Right? Like you just post something and everyone just thinks, oh, aren't they so holy? Oh, aren't they just, oh, they just got it going on, right? Like it's, it's very easy to fake things for little increments of time. And even before other people, it's, it's impossible to fake anything when we're standing before God. Absolutely impossible. He knows that although we're, we're coming in worship of him, that we may be doing so in vain. We may be honoring him with our lips, but not with our hearts. He knows everything. And so we see in Jesus's response, he, he loves these men. Have you thought about that? How much he loves these? These men are here to trap him. These men are here to rebuke him. These men are trying to kill him. And yet Jesus loves them. And he loves the people who listen to them too much to let them stay in this religious tradition. He doesn't want them to have clean hands and dirty hearts. Think about it. He could have just shooed them away, right? They show up, Jesus, they're not keeping the traditions. Get out of here. Like, Just leave. You're, you're a moron. Just get out of here. Like, I'm just done with you. That's not what he does. He doesn't dismiss them. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't shut them down. He, he preaches to them. Do you see that? He opens up God's word and he rebukes them. Out of love, he does that. Right? Love isn't just simply coming around someone and being like, "Hey, you're the best." Let's look in the mirror together. You're lovely and you're just the greatest ever. You're the most wonderful. Now, love has some of that, right? But if that's all that it is, that's not love. That's somebody that's like a fanboy or a fangirl, right? Like that, that's not love. love. Love is when we see someone doing something very harmful to themselves. And we step out and say, ooh, uh, you shouldn't do that. that you, you might die, right? Or, or, or when you approach them and you say, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to say, th- I, I need to say this into, you, into your life. And that's what true love does. True love speaks the truth even when it's uncomfortable. This is also what we do with our kids, isn't it? When our kids start doing stuff, we're like, hey, knock it off. Don't do that, right? Like, is, that's loving, Right? Your kid runs out in front of a car to grab them and to pull them out from getting run over by a car is a loving thing to do. Right? Like, teaching them how to do, these are loving things to do. When they start having activities and start doing things that you're like, well, that's not helpful. Right? Like Having that conversation with them, that's a hard thing to do, but it's out of love. And this is what Jesus does here. He reveals to them their sin by preaching to them, opening up the word of God to them so that those whom the Father is softening by the Spirit might see the error of their ways. And those that he is hardening will continue in their hardness of heart. So Jesus preaches to them from the writings of Moses, the one that God used to bring Israel, his laws in the first place. And Jesus shows them one example of how they are rejecting God's clear commands. So Jesus turns them and he quotes Moses. This is what he says. He says, for Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must die. So notice Moses says this, but you say, or like that, he's showing drastic contrast. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corbin, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. So you're making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. See, see, the command that Jesus is talking about is much more than simply honoring your parents with your words, right? Usually when we get told to honor your parents, it's when? Like, like at, at your stage of life. I mean, like, like when your parents are, you're still living in your parents' home and it's like, honor your parents. You're like, all right. All right like, and that's it. That's like, after you graduate, after you move out, you're like, I'm done now. I don't have to honor them anymore. I'm out of their house. In in the Old Testament, that's not the the case. Like, honoring that your parents meant much more than that. The the very clear command of God is that as they have taken care of you when you were very young, as they get very old, it's your responsibility to help take care of them, to make sure that they don't, in sickness or in poverty, end up dying from like starvation, right? Like, like this is our job as, as kids for our our parents that as we are able in our abundance to not neglect them, but to help them and to provide for them. That's the clear command of God. But the religious tradition that they had created, that these religious people had created said that you could simply say a word over all your belongings. You could say, Corbin, it's all God's stuff, not my stuff. All of this now belongs to God. I don't have abundance, God has abundance. So I don't have to take care of my parents. Because just Corbin, just, I said it, so it's all true, right? Like kind of like if you, if you ever watch The Office, Michael Scott, he's, he has a lot of debt and he walks out of his office and he just goes, bankruptcy, right? Like as if that means he's filed for bankruptcy, he's, just, he's declared it, uh, right? Like in the same way, that doesn't actually mean that. In, in the same way, just saying Corbin does, doesn't mean you can sort of neglect God's word, right? And, and that's Jesus's main point here, uh, not Michael Scott, but, but, uh, but, but, but this, as, as Corbin R.C. Sproul he he said Corbin was was meant that during this time, uh, you would not use your personal wealth for any other purpose because it had been committed to God. So in 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 the name of piety, in the name of seeming really really religious, a person could escape the obligation of caring for his parents if you just said that everything now that you had just belongs to God. Now here's the trick though: if you just say Corbin, everything belongs to God. I don't need to take care of my parents. What you can do your whole life is use your money for yourself and whatever you need. You can go on trips to Greece. You can you can you can do whatever you want with your money, but but it means you're out of the obligation of taking care of your of your parents. In this tradition, it sought to look holy, and it seems really holy and nice. Like oh, that person is very holy. They said the word Corbin, but but it doesn't. It neglects God's word, and that's his main point. In theory, it sounds nice. Externally, it has the appearance of godliness, but in practice, it was very ungodly. It seemed holy, but it was very unholy. And that's Jesus's point. The religious leaders who are supposed to love and teach and know God's words and to give them to God's people, they make God's word void by their tradition. Not only in this matter, but in many things they do this. and many such things they do that. These men leave behind God's words. They trust in their own words, and Jesus preaches to them opens up God's word, rebukes them. Do they see it? And up to this point, Jesus was speaking with just the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes. But next what we see is he calls together the people to himself, the religious leaders. And he, they, they uh, wanted Jesus to, to tell his disciples it's necessary to wash your hands in this very specific way, purify yourselves, to care about the external religious things. And Jesus had preached to them, but now he's gonna turn and he's gonna go after their hearts. So he calls the whole crowd over to himself. So now it's not just the religious leaders, but it's the whole crowd. And and the next verse says, And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now, if you look uh, and cross-reference this with the book of Matthew, the same thing is used. uh, But in Matthew, the phrase is used, to help explain a little bit more what this means. And it literally means it's not what goes into you that makes you unclean, but when you're sitting on the seat, what comes out of you is what defiles you. I don't need to draw any more parallels. You get what I'm saying. So he's not what comes into you, but what goes out of you that makes you unclean. And the next verse says, and when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about that. They're like, What in the world, Jesus? Why are you talking about going to the bathroom? This seems seems odd. What is happening? And Jesus says to them, then are you also without understanding? Are you also without understanding? And uh, as he does so, he says, do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods as unclean. So Jesus's main argument here is that you don't need to wash like the Pharisees and the scribes in order to be made holy and clean. The external things that you do cannot make you clean and holy. They don't have the ability to do so. Because Jesus is saying our biggest, hand, our biggest problem is not that we have clean or dirty hands, but rather our biggest problem is whether we have clean or dirty hearts. That's Jesus's main point. And and you and I, uh, by nature, we're kind of professionals on focusing on the externals, aren't we? Especially in churches, if we're honest, right? Think about it. Think about maybe things that you've been taught at churches before. As long as I don't smoke or drink or have sex with anyone other than my spouse, As long as I don't look at pornography, as long as I haven't had an abortion, as long as I vote this way or that way, as long as I read my Bible every day and I come to church gatherings every week, as long as I don't post certain things on social media, but then do post other things, as long as I pray the right way, as long as I use the right vocabulary, as long as I can know and recite the right doctrines, as long as I can do all of the external things, then I know that I'm right with God. Then I know that I'm holy. See, our, our relationship with God becomes this checklist. Have I done this? Yep, 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 yep. I've done all the things. I must be holy, right? How much does that get taught and preached? How, how much have we heard that growing up, walking through the, how much have we naturally thought that that's true? And our, our relationship with God becomes just this checklist of religious activities. We are experts at focusing on the external, things that we can touch and measure believing that only external things can make us unholy, right? Don't touch that. Don't drink that. Don't go there. Those things will make you unholy. Those things will defile you. But is that what Jesus thinks? Surprisingly, no. Jesus didn't think that at all. Look at Jesus's words in the next verse. Sorry, I lost it on the screen, but but look at the next words. It says, and he said, what comes out of a person, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from without? No, come from within. And they defile a person. See, this is shockingly different than what we might naturally think. These things, all of them start, not externally, but inside of our own hearts, as people, and they work themselves out of our hearts into our everyday lives. Jesus' brother, James, he, he will write similar words in James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. He says, let no one say when he is tempted, oh, I'm being tempted by God. God is tempting me. No, he said, for, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But, he says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed, by his own desires, his desires are what lure and tempt you. you the problem is within. See, see we're, we're so prone to thinking the main problem is out there somewhere. It's it's outside of us. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Your main problem is your heart. That is your main problem. We carry it in our hearts with us from birth, and by nature, we love to disobey God's words and we love to reject God's judgments because we think that we would make a pretty great God, right? If God thought the way that we did about things, he believed what we believed about things, he'd be a great guy. He'd be an easy God to follow, right? We we love, so so Jesus wants us to see that's our main problem, our own hearts. It's deep within us and it goes with us everywhere that we go. In Jeremiah 17, verse nine, we see something interesting about God. If you want to flip there, write that down. It's interesting. We we hear all the time in our culture, follow your hearts, right? Just follow your heart. Whatever your heart leads, it will go well for you. And God says in Jeremiah 17, nine, that the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And that's the problem. We think that we can be defiled and made unclean by things out here. We don't recognize how desperate our position is before God. Not only that, but as we've mentioned, we have hearts that love to justify ourselves, to declare ourselves innocent. So what we all naturally do is we create traditions and systems whereby we try to cleanse ourselves by doing lots of external things. And we've all believed that lie at one point or another, that by our own actions, we can be good enough, we can be religious enough, we can be moral enough, in order to pay off our sins, to pay off our debts to God. And most of us are taught in churches to simply obey the rules, play the game, fake it till you make it, worry about all the externals, because only the external things are the things that can make you unholy. And we listen to those traditions and we believe them because they're taught by people that seem to be really extra special holy people. And and we want our lives to be successful like theirs. We don't listen to God's word that our greatest enemy is one that we carry with us inside of our chests, everywhere that we go. See, we don't think about our dirty hearts because we're preoccupied with having clean hands. And if we can just have clean hands, everything will go well. But Jesus tells us the main issue is an external. No, we can externally look righteous. Externally, we can have the appearance of godliness, but not the form or the substance of it. We might be worshiping the true and living God, but doing it wrongly, in vain. We might be the hypocrites, the play actors, who believe that we are the people of God, but really we're headed to face God's judgment. See, brothers and sisters, if God's word is true, if our greatest problem is that our hearts are deceitful above all things and beyond cure, if we are tempted when we are lured and enticed by our own desires, if evil things come from within us, and that's what defiles us. If the problem isn't out there and easily manageable, but rather in here, in our own chests, then what do we do? Like what, 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 what hope do we have? And that's where there's beauty in this text because there's nothing you can do. Nothing. There's nothing you can do, but Jesus has done something. There's nothing you can do to make yourself clean, but there's something Jesus has done to make you clean. See, only he was without sin. Only he did not have a heart that was defiled. Only he did not have a heart that led him into desire, lust, and temptation, and things that made him defiled. Only he had no sexual immorality, or theft, or murder, or adultery, or that whole list. He never rebelled against God's words or God's judgments ever. His heart was not deceitful, and he... His heart never tempted him with evil. And yet he, although perfect and never sinning for the joy of our salvation, he took upon himself our sin. He chose to be looked at by God the Father as if he had committed these sins, our sins. And he bore the full weight of our punishment for our sins upon himself, This is the wild thing about the Bible, that that God himself, the one that we have sinned against, he himself came and took the punishment for our dirty hearts. And Jesus died in our place, condemned for our sin. And then he rose bodily from the dead three days later so that we could be offered forgiveness for our dirty hearts. And when we come to Jesus, when we repent of sin and believe upon him as our God, savior, and king, when we do this, the Bible says that we are justified. We're declared innocent before him as the judge of all things. And I'm like, stand before the judge and you know the verdict is not going to go well, right? Like, you're, you're going to be guilty. And then the judge himself, whom you have sinned against, pays the penalty for you. And then he says, hey, you're free to go. You're, you're free to go. I, I paid it for you, right? Like, not because, not because we are innocent, but because Jesus is innocent. And then what we see is that we're adopted into the family of God as sons and daughters, and 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 get this, we are given new hearts. Brand new hearts. That's that's the that's what he promises. Us who are so fixated on, on clean hands and dirty hearts, he says, I want to give you, I want to give you a brand new heart. I don't I don't wanna I don't wanna just give you a bunch of rules and traditions you have to follow. I I wanna give you a brand new heart. I want to change everything that you love so that what comes out of you is not what used to come out of you. And and we all know that you, you can give someone laws, but that doesn't change their hearts, right? You can give them laws, it doesn't change their hearts. But if you change their hearts, they will keep God's laws. And this is his main point. And then we are given God the Spirit to empower us and to help us walk throughout our lives. And the Spirit enables us to do what we cannot do on our own, please God, and to say no to sin. See, apart from God's work in our lives, we have no hope. But with him, with him as he helps us and empowers us, we are promised that we will grow in faithfulness to God as he we have this new heart that that, that has new passions because what we love changes. I, I say this all the time it's like it's like when I fell uh, in love with Samantha, I, I wasn't then going to the mall scanning anymore, right? Like when I was single, I go to the mall, I'm scanning, right? I'm like where is she? I don't know, I'm gonna find some woman, I'm gonna love her, she's gonna be my wife, it's gonna be awesome, right? When I found Samantha drastically, that I didn't do that anymore, why. Because my love changed my behavior. In a similar way, God wants to change our hearts so that our, what we love changes. Now, does that mean that we won't sin anymore when we become a Christian? No. <laughs> if we say that we don't have any sin anymore, uh, what we see in the book of 1 John is that oh, we are uh, deceived. <laughs> so, so we will always sin in our lives. What we will see is God the Spirit who now lives inside of us as we sin. He says, "Whoa, that's not who you are anymore. That's your old person. And he convicts us of that and convinces us, oh, that's sin. And so we repent of that. We say, oh, you're right. Sorry. Uh, we ask for forgiveness. We believe that Jesus has paid the penalty for that sin. And we, we move on. And so, so that's the rhythm of the Christian life. We have these new hearts. But we still live in broken bodies with our human flesh. We are saints who sin. And we will be as such until Jesus comes back and sets up his kingdom on the earth or until we close our eyes in death and open them and see his eyes in eternal life. So, so my question for us is as we're closing this morning is do you believe this is a true and an accurate picture of you? Do you believe from birth and by nature that your heart is wicked and dirty and needing cleansing? Do you believe that Jesus, God the son, God himself stood condemned in your place and suffered the punishment you deserve to die and then he died and he rose from the dead so that you might have new life and a new heart and a new family? And if you turned your back on sin and turned to Jesus in faith, and if you have not, know that Jesus is ready and willing right now in this moment to forgive you if you will come. He, he loves these guys that were trying to kill him, right? He, the, the guys that were trying to kill, you're, you're not like actively out there like, I'm gonna kill Jesus, right? Like, like he, he loves them so much that, that he would preach to them and open his word to them and convict them of sin so they would turn and have forgiveness. How much more you? So admit your sin and ask for forgiveness and turn and believe upon Jesus and, and know that Jesus has died to take away all the punishment but also to give you a new heart. There is forgiveness available for you today if you will but come and so will you. And if you're a Christian, remember today that, that you are not part of God's family because you cleansed your own hands and worked really hard. Like That's not why you have a new heart. That's not why you've drastically been changed by God's grace. It has nothing to do with how much you did. You didn't study enough. You weren't moral enough. You weren't religious enough. No, God was kind to you, and God gave you a new heart. That's what God did. And this new heart changes everything about you. It changes what you love. It changes how you work. It changes how you live. It can't help but change everything about you. Way more so than when I fell in love with Samantha and quit scanning at the mall. Like way more, way more than that. It changes everything about you as a a person. And my encouragement for you is, is not to take your freedom in Christ and make up traditions that other people have to follow. It's easy to do. You start off well. And then you're like, yeah, but now everyone has to kind of measure up to these things that I have that are not in here, but just things that I think my preferences and my traditions. And so just keep, keep doing what we're doing as a church. Keep it up. Uh, don't, don't have other things that people have to live up to. No, follow the clear commands of God's word. Let his word dwell in you richly. Get into his word until it gets into you. And when life cuts you, bleed Bible. And if you have felt convicted of maybe sin this morning, use this as a fresh opportunity to turn away from that sin and turn uh, to faith in Jesus and ask forgiveness for maybe some traditions that you have that, that you've made maybe equal to God's word or maybe, maybe, maybe you've kind of made them more, more than equal right? and, and ask for forgiveness for that, knowing that, that our hearts that so often run away from him, they are being kept by the Father and no one can snatch you from his hand. So have great confidence that your God loves you and he has saved you and he's ready and willing to forgive you. So let's pray and then we'll sing a little bit in response. So Father, thankful for your word this morning. Thankful for how you change us and challenge us. Thankful that you don't come to us and give us a big long laundry list of things that we need to do in order to be declared innocent before you. I'm so thankful for that because I know how my heart is prone to doing that. By nature, I would be a man who, just cares so much about external things and i would be i would think that i just have all these religious boxes i have to tick and if i tick them then i can just be declared innocent and yet you've shown us through your word that that's not how you work at all that you're a god who's who's rich in love you're a god who who comes to give us brand new hearts to change our hearts i'm thankful that that you don't want us to have clean hands and dirty hearts you you want to forgive us, and you want us to change, to change our hearts and give us new desires. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross for my sin, for taking upon yourself the judgment I deserve because I am prone to religiousness and traditions. I am prone to adding to your word. I'm prone to justifying myself in so many ways, and you took the punishment for all of my sin and you died and you rose from the dead and offered me forgiveness of sin. told me if I would just come and repent of my sin, turn away from it and turn in faith to you, that you would forgive me and welcome me into your family and give me a new heart. Thank you for that. Pray for us as a church that you would continue to grow us in faith, that we would not care about external traditional things and traditions that we add on to your word, but you would fill us with the love of your word that your word would be what we meditate on. Your word would be what what nourishes us and feeds us as your people. That as we need food every day and drink every day, that we need your your word every day to revive our souls. God, continue to create in us a heart that loves you and loves one another. Continue to build a church where any kind of dividing walls of hostility because of our different culturals or or traditional things might might cause frustration or anxiety or fear or friction that you just tear those walls down and let us focus in on you and your word and let us gather together around Jesus, our God, Savior, and King, and worship him. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' great name and for your glory, amen.